All right, if you are following with us and you have your book, chapter 17, let's turn to the 14th verse. As I said, this is chapter is called The Three Levels of Spiritual Practice. And the question that Krishna is responding to is to the qualities of our devotion, qualities of our offering. Everything we do in life is an offering. The moment a thought goes into the universe, it's an offering. The moment a word comes out of us, it's an offering. The moment we move our energy to perform any action, it's an offering to the universe. And Krishna and Arjuna is asking Krishna, how do I know what my offering is? How do I know the quality of that offering? How do I know the vibrational resonance of that offering? Where is that offering going? And of course, those qualities, those gunas are the sattvic, the rajasic and the tamasic. So Krishna has already spoken a little bit about the different actions. And this was a fun one where we ended, which was on the 13th one, a little kind of a, a eye-opening moment for so many of us. Because it just struck me, reading this right there, the yagya, which again, yagya is not, you know, where I oh, could get some fire going and I'm throwing some ghee into it. Every action, as we said, is a yagya because it requires our fire, our own prana, our own energy. And it is towards a certain result. That's what the yagyas are, aren't they? I'm doing this because I need something. I want something from the universe. Everything we do is I want something from the universe. So naturally, everything becomes a yagya. The question is, who are we offering this yagya to? And the 13th one was, that yagya is declared tamasic which is not motivated by regard for scriptural injunctions. We talked about that, what scriptural injunctions are. Scriptural injunctions are basically this. Everything that the scriptures talk and share to us about is how to uplift and better the state of our consciousness. So firstly, if we're not working with that awareness at all, the moment we don't have that awareness that I want to do something to uplift and better myself, naturally that becomes tamasic in quality. I mean, so I realized, like, wow, practically everything I'm doing because I'm not aware. Yeah, I sit to meditate and even oftentimes I'm not even fully aware when I sit to meditate, I'm doing this to better, to uplift myself, to open myself, to awaken. You know, I put my cushion in and I'm sitting down. It's like, all right, another day, another meditation. And by very definition, that meditation itself starts from a very low level of vibration. Can you imagine just bringing that awareness or the lack of it Krishna is saying, makes our actions one or the other. The next, makes no suitable gifts of food or money. Again, we have to put this in the right context. What is food and money? They're sustaining powers, nourishing powers. Again, our prana, our energy, anything we do, where we're not interested in putting out a lot of energy, which means everything done subconsciously is tamasic by nature. We're talking about last time, we're talking about brushing our teeth. And prior to this, Krishna says, Rajasic activities are where you expect something in return. So if I'm brushing my teeth, and if I'm thinking about, well, you know, I'm brushing my teeth because I really want my teeth to be really white and I want my gums to be really healthy, that makes this action Rajasic. Because it's transactional and I know what I want from it. There's clarity behind why I'm brushing my teeth. But how do most of us brush our teeth? 
oh, you know, we're thinking whatever we're thinking. It's, we're not even aware of the fact that we're brushing our teeth. How do we eat our food? We're not eating our food and saying, wait, well, you know, I'm eating this food because all I really want to do is I want to be really healthy and I want, you know, I want to taste this food fully. I want to enjoy every aspect of it. No, televisions are on. People are talking all over the place. We're just stuffing our mouths, not even aware why we're doing this. So every action in that process, which doesn't require from us food or money, which means which isn't being activated from our, on our behalf with energy, naturally becomes tamasic. So again, you just a uh, little bit of a reality check of how much of all actions we perform during the day are tamasic. And finally, he says, and those that are performed without offering of sacred chants or prayers and is without devotion. Again, a beautiful way to naturally uplift any activity is pray before you do that activity, say Om before, just, just to spiritualize it, just to energize it. Because yes, our minds are not going to be able to stay sharp throughout every, you know, every morsel of food that I'm eating. I'm not going to be able to hold my awareness in clarity. But if I do a little prayer before I eat, already I have lifted that potential vibration upward, even if my mind cannot maintain perhaps the sattva of its awareness. So that was, you know, just a kind of relax into this. Everything that we do needs to be awakened, spiritualized, and thereby nothing can be called mundane, material, or useless. Everything can become immediately God-remembering, energizing, uplifting, and spiritualized. Then he goes on, veneration of, I just want to talk about the next three stanzas, he's going to talk about austerities. He's going to talk about tapasya, you know, that tapasya of body, of speech, and of mind. And it's important to just realize tapasya as such an important key element on the spiritual path. Um, in Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga, in the Yamas and the Niyamas, it's right there as one of the niyams, tapasya. What does tapasya really mean? Austerity is the English word for it. And tap means heat, energy, you know, again. But have you ever, I don't know if you've done yoga, say for example, and you've held a pose and you have to keep holding that pose. And as you do that, suddenly the body, you know, you have to put out so much energy to hold and then heat starts to develop. And this heat is the resistance that your willpower is facing from your body, from your senses, from your natural desire to say, I don't want to do this anymore. That is tapasya, not just self-control. Persisting in self-control well beyond what would be your natural abilities. Stepping out of your comfort zone far beyond. When we think about the tapasya that we read the stories in the scriptures and he sat down to meditate for thousands of years. <laughs> That's tapasya. He didn't sit down to meditate and say, all right, chalo do ghande ho <laughs> you know, Where's Brahma? Where are my boons? Where's Shiva? You know, one year has passed, a decade has passed, hundred years have passed, thousand years. Then that tapasya meant something. So when we think of tapasya, we have to think about the preservation of that self-control. Well, all your life force is under your command. And we can do that in everything we do again. But what does Krishna talk about? Veneration of the devas, the priestly, the gurus and the wise. Veneration, of course, means reverence and respect. But 
I don't think reverence and respect means for us to wake up every morning and just, you know, have the arati of the gurus and just be like, oh, you know, oh, how great, oh, you know, to see great, oh, ji. It has to be that because I venerate somebody, I do it by following their examples, by willing to live in accordance, almost you can say to imitate there. If I respect somebody, I want to be like that person. You know, that's why all these people who want to be really successful in life, you know, they're just, they want to read the autobiographies of all these successful people because they want to know, what can I do? They can't just have, oh, here's Steve Jobs, you know, autobiography. Let me just put it on my altar. <laughs> let me just, you know, in the morning, let me just go and do some uh, little firework before it. No, I have to live according to their example. So veneration of the devas. Devas are what? high spiritual astral qualities that naturally uplift us. That's the devas. Of the devas, of the priestly. The priestly are those people who live by those high ideals. So them, the gurus and the wise. So that's one natural step. To try to shape our outward lives in accordance to these realities. Next, purity of heart, of mind, of body of environment, what we're putting inside our bodies, the, you know, the energies we surround ourselves with. Cleanliness is another one of those niyamas of Patanjali. Straightforwardness. I really enjoy that one. Krishna has talked about straightforwardness at least four other times in the past when he's talking about you know, every time Arjuna asks, who is you know, the person who you think has made it or who's a true devotee? And Krishna always brings this term, straightforwardness forwardness. He who is straightforward. Now normally when we think of straightforward, what is the term that comes? Like honest. No, he's a very honest man. But honesty is a little bit of a, sometimes a vague term because in the name of honesty, you've seen people do a lot more that doesn't quite feel right vibrationally. So when I was thinking about straightforward, I was thinking more of an adjective. When we say, this thing is straightforward. Anushka came in the, in, the, uh, in the evening and I was setting up the camera and she said, do you need help? And I said, no, it's pretty straightforward. What does that mean? It's not like the camera is really honest with me. No, it's uncomplicated. When somebody is not complicated, because we love complication, don't we? Oh, how can I make it even more confusing? Because if I came here and Anushka saw me doing all these things, you're like, how can I make it more complicated to show that, you know, I've, I've understood. No, it's pretty straightforward. And I like the word straight and forward. Straight is like the fastest way to get from A to B is a straight line. And forward is the direction. I'm always moving forward. So when I think of straightforward, I think of simplicity and purpose. Forward. Somebody who's simple and purposeful rather than just that kind of more generic term of like, oh, he's an honest person, you know, he's, what you see is what you get, straight forward. Think about how complicated you sometimes try to make things or just naturally seem that this is that particular way. Sexual restraint, of course, Krishna has brought this up several times, to be able to draw your life force back in, especially that creative force, to be able to use it for, hopefully, more uplifted creative deeds than purely for pleasure. That's, that's the only difference here. You can choose the same power. It can either be only for pleasure or it could be uplifted and become a force to reckon with in what you express and manifest in this world. 
harmlessness. These are considered the austerities of the body. Harmlessness. And I was thinking about, these are the austerities of the body. You know, not, he's not just saying harmlessness of mind. And one thought that came to me is, when we are in anger, for example, we're actually doing a lot of harm to our body. Because when anger comes in, when irritation comes in, what happens is that fight or flight mechanism gets triggered and it really affects our immune system, our digestive system, our higher functioning of reason and the executive functioning of the frontal cortex of our brain. Every time we become angry or get upset or irritated, we are creating harm in our own bodies. So harmlessness as an austerity of the body was an interesting thought for me because usually you think of it more in, a, in an outward sense. But every time we give in to that compulsion of anger or irritation, we create so much harm to ourselves. So that's another interesting one to kind of keep in mind. The next one is of speech. Speech that is pleasant, beneficial and truthful without being offensive. I like that one. The repetition of japa and recitation of the scriptures, these are called the austerities of speech. Again, austerities of speech, constantly persevering in this, not every now and then when it suits me, then this is how I'm going to be. And speech that is pleasant, beneficial and truthful. I don't know if you've ever heard a story of Socrates and what he would call, or at least this is what's attributed to him. Sometimes you never know these things. The triple filter test. He had this test and the anecdote goes as, you know, one of his disciples comes to him completely just agitated and all upset and a little, you know, flustered. And Socrates asks him, you know, what happened? He's like, oh, I just met this guy, you know, this friend of yours and he was just saying all these horrible things about you. And so it's really affected me deeply. And, and the moment this disciple wanted to tell Socrates what those things were, Socrates says, wait, before I hear what you have to say to me, I want to make sure that it, you know, fulfills the three conditions of my test, this triple filter test. And the first one was, what you're about to tell me, are you absolutely sure it's true? And the disciple says, well, I don't really know, you know, I, I, it could be, it couldn't be, but I'm not 100% sure it's true. So then that's like, all right, then I don't want to hear what you have to say. Secondly, what you're about to tell me, is it good? You know, is it going to uplift me? Oh, and then of course the guy says, well, actually it's the, quite the opposite, because <laughs> that's the only things we sometimes tend to or enjoy sharing. And finally he says, and the third thing is, is it useful? Is it beneficial? Am I going to benefit from knowing what you're going to share with me? And again, of course, disciple says no. And it's beautiful to see that's exactly what Krishna says here. Pleasant, is it good? Is it uplifting? Is it beneficial? And is it truthful? This is a wonderful thing to keep in mind every time we talk, every time we share something with people. This is, you know, a great way to ensure you're not getting caught up in gossip and rumor. Because sometimes we hear something from somebody immediately, you know, it's like, who can I tell? And because it's so juicy and it's so fun and it's so, oh, if, it, if they hear from it from me, you know, wouldn't it be a lovely thing before they hear it from somebody else? And so always be mindful of this thing. And I love that he puts in the repetition of japa, which is a wonderful way not to give in to this. Because if you just have something going on in your mind all the time, you won't want to use your speech unnecessarily because you're just enjoying 
just having that mantra or that japa going on. So it's a, you know, it's a natural kind of counterbalance to a tendency that we all have is to share anything that we hear that we feel, you know, might be just exciting to somebody else. Is it truthful? Is it good? Is it beneficial? Even mindedness, cheerfulness, kindliness, serenity, self-control, purity of heart, meditative communion with true self. These are said to be the austerities of the mind. So we have body, we have speech, and we have mind. And again, he's gone through this so many times, but it's important to just want to come to even-mindedness and cheerfulness. Our Guru Yogananda would say the highest state of expression is to be always even-minded and cheerful. So that's what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for ecstatic, oh wow, isn't this wonderful, isn't this awesome? Because anything in duality that rises too far from your own center is naturally going to have to experience the opposite side of it where, oh my goodness, I can't take it anymore. Even-minded and cheerful. But this even-minded and cheerful is not a dull state of being. Yogananda defined, or I'm paraphrasing as a definition, but he defined almost even-mindedness by saying, to be able to stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. Imagine that. If the moon were about to be crashing into the earth and to then be able to stay absolutely centered in yourself. That's the definition of even-minded. But it's balanced by cheerfulness because I've often seen when we tell people be even-minded, they become stern and serious and rigid. They think even-minded means not letting my energy relax. All right, you want me to be even-minded? Fine, then I don't care about anything. Then I don't want, you know, that's our idea. Indifference is what we think even-mindedness means. And therefore, there's that balance to it. And cheerful. And cheerful isn't that, oh, inwardly I feel joy. Because, you know, I've seen a lot of people fake that inward joy. That that cheerfulness expresses itself outwardly. I'm even-minded, but I'm always joyful and cheerful and that's the austerity of the mind it's very hard to maintain that state that's the key here i can be even-minded for you know the half an hour that you see me in this class or something and i could very well fool you into thinking i'm a very even-minded person but you know the moment we shut facebook down i could be whoever i want to be I could fool you into thinking i'm very joyful but once narayani and i are upstairs she knows the truth and so that austerity isn't just being even-minded and cheerful at times, is to be able to sustain that reality. This threefold austerity of body, speech and mind is sattvic in nature. If it is practiced by persevering seekers who are blessed with deep devotion and who desire not the fruits of their actions. So if we're able to practice this, with that uplifted, con, you know, persevering. That's key here. If we're able to persevere in this, because we've seen a lot of people with little spurts. Ah, oh, oh, today I meditated so deeply, you know, for three hours, and then that means for the next two weeks I'm not going to meditate at all because, wow, didn't I do so well? Persevering. Then he says, those austerities which are performed for the sake of gaining respect, honor, and a good name, done therefore, for the sake of show, 
which we all have, are mere ostentation, fitful, and transitory. These are what are called rajasic. So rajasic is when we try our best to do them. Sometimes it's great, even if you're doing it for show, at least you're doing something. At least you're trying. If in the beginning it's only to receive respect and adoration, well, so be it. It's better than the alternative, which is not doing anything at all. But they will never be able to last. They will always be transitory. And they will require a lot of effort on our behalf. Whereas when you achieve a sattvic state, it is a relaxed and natural state. You don't have to work at it anymore. But first we need the rajasic. We need to keep pushing ourselves. And finally, of course, he says, tamasic austerities are performed without reasonable purpose. Perhaps for self-injury or to inflict harm on others. He's still talking about austerities. You see, he's not saying tamasic, just doing nothing. Tamasic austerities. What are tamasic austerities? This is an interesting one. Tamasic austerities are performed without reasonable purpose. That's a key word here. Reasonable purpose. What is reasonable purpose? Purpose that is unreasonable, all right? What is purpose? Purpose that is self-defeating. And I was thinking about, say, when we get upset with somebody, what do we do? We want to control that anger for as long as we can. Fine, I'm not going to talk to you. And oh, it's just like, and that's austerity because you have to put out energy not to talk to that person. But the very fact of doing this is defeating all purpose, which is your purpose, is to either harm yourself, as we just saw the moment anger comes in, we create self-injury naturally, and then to inflict harm on others. Oftentimes we do this. We put these tamasic austerities, whereas my love is conditional. Fine, okay, you don't want to, you know, hang out with me or whatever it is, I withdraw my love from you. I'm not going to do this with you anymore, I'm not going to do. And it takes energy to actually persevere in that state. It takes energy to stay in a mood just to prove that you're right. And how, don't we do that when we get into a fight and you really want to be right, so you're going to hold your anger, you're going to hold your like silence, you're going to hold that mood. And that's the tamasic austerity that all of us do so often. And we do it in so many other ways, sometimes more subtly, sometimes a little bit more overtly, where there is no purpose really. While it seems the purpose here is I'm right, but it's unreasonable because it's self-defeating, because in the very action, we create both self-harm and harm to others. In the manner of gift-giving, now that he's come to the, con the question of gift-giving again, the offering of. To give sattvically is to give without a thought of receiving in return. Anything. A gift doesn't mean monetary, doesn't mean material. The gift of my time, the gift of my energy, the gift of listening to somebody, the gift of my advice, the gift of my support. Anything given freely without any desire to receive anything in return becomes a gift. And that attains that sattvic quality to give because it is right to do so. Another one of those. Mm. And to give appropriately. This is a key one. To give appropriately at the proper place and time and to one who is deserving. 
Isn't that an interesting one? To yeah. one, it is sattvic to give only to the one who is deserving. Because it requires a lot of discernment and discrimination mm. on our part to know how to even give. You see, karma is very tricky. Karma is an entanglement of energy. And sometimes in the process of, oh, I just I have to give and I just have to help, we create more karma that binds us for longer because we don't have discrimination in our giving to what is appropriate at what level. Swamiji, in talking about advice, especially talking about place and time, yeah. he said he would withhold often advice from people. Very clear, he knows this is what they ought to be doing. But he said he'd withhold it at times for years. Because if you give advice to somebody when they're not ready for it and they shut, close themselves to that advice, when the time does come when they could have been open to it, having once already rejected it in their mind, it becomes very hard for them to open themselves to it again. And Swami says, in that process, you delay their spiritual progress. Can you imagine that? Just this. Just because I'm unaware of what's appropriate, I think Narayani really needs to learn this, and I think I know the answer to it. So in the goodness of my heart, Narayani, can I tell you something? Please I really think so. you need to hear this. You know, I just, I feel Master's guiding me to tell you this. Whatever nonsense we come up with sometimes in this idea that I perhaps have the key to somebody else's issues. And if we don't have that sattvic refinement of our consciousness, we end up actually delaying, harming their very progress. And you can take that same concept of advice and you can apply it to pretty much absolutely everything. Anandamui Ma would talk about giving money to a beggar and she said, what that beggar does with that money is also your karma. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that? He goes and buys alcohol with it goes and buys drugs with it. That continues to have a connection with you. Therefore, it's so much better always to give them food appropriately. You see, it's not that they're not in need. It's not that they're not deserving. But what do they need, really? What is actually going to serve a higher purpose here? The right place, the right time, the deserving or the undeserving, and the appropriateness of what is being given. Again, very interesting that Krishna really wants us to tune into that because giving is such a big part of how we live our lives of course receiving is as well and the spirit on the spiritual path as well especially on the path to give is key mm -hmm. and so we really have to tune into what that's going to look like in our lives the gift a gift is deemed rajasic if it is given perhaps reluctantly in the thought of what one is losing. Oh boy, I like this one because we all know the feeling of that one is in the hope of getting something in return. Isn't that interesting? You hope that you're gonna get something in return from this, but even then, there is this fear of losing in giving. Yeah, I, I have that with <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yesterday we were Narayan you made this amazing salad, okay. Full disclosure out here. Made this amazing salad. Always comes down to food, doesn't it, with me? So that's my biggest block in this life. Made this amazing salad and a friend of ours was going to come and, you know, we were going to give her some food and I was just like, 
let's not give her the salad because I really want. You know, it's just like that salad was so precious to me. It was just this instant from my heart, just like let's not give her the salad, please. And that's it. You know, that's all it takes for us. That reluctance, and then add to that that we're giving. You know, because I hope. Uh, you know, now that she knows that we've given the things that are really good, <laughs> I hope she's going to give us something in return. <laughs> the next time she makes salad, I hope she gives it to us as well. You know, and well, the fact that we even hope she will appreciate. Yeah, then there, there's that appreciation, recognition. At least, you know, I hope she mentions it somewhere. <laughs> I hope she does an Insta post on <laughs> on the fact that I gave her salad. Whatever it is, we're just and so much of this is just under the radar. It's not like my mind's like working and calculating and planning. It's just under the radar. This is how my heart is. Because sattva, rajas and tamas can't be faked, you see. None of this can be just like, I could look sattvic, <laughs> but in my heart, a lot of other stuff could be happening. Because it's all about the vibration of our consciousness. It's not about the action. Sometimes it's not even about the intention. Because even behind that, there's a little egoic self, and that egoic self vibrates. All creation, as Krishna says, vibrates on one of these three gunas, and usually, often, an admixture of all three. A gift is tamasic if it is given inappropriately, so quite the opposite of sattvic, at the wrong time or place, and or to an unworthy person, or contemptuously with ill will. That also happens, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> We've given something to somebody. Not only was it reluctant, not only do we hope something to come back from it, but boy, we're so upset about it. And in that very giving, we've actually given to them, you can say, you know, just a bomb, <laughs> something that's going to harm them because it all contains vibration. This entire universe is just vibration. And every thought, every word, every action, every kind of moment of consciousness exists in that vibration. And so really be aware of what you are doing in this giving. Sometimes we give to our guru also, oof, in these same ways. We give to our own practices in the same way. You sit down to meditate and you just don't want to at all and you're just grumpy about the fact that you have to do it. And there it is. That's what you're offering in that moment. You know, you may think that well, I meditated an hour and a half or whatever it was, but you just reinforced your own tamasic nature by doing something that's considered higher than sattva even <laughs> to a certain degree. And that's why you cannot fool the universe. You can fool man, you can fool people, you can fool even the closest ones for a very long time. You cannot fool the universe, you cannot fool Krishna. And no matter what you do, who you are, you will get exactly what you deserve. And that's a wonderful thing to always remember because then you don't have to judge anyone and you don't have to wish any ill on them because whoever they are, whatever they are, the universe will take care of them. Good, bad, ugly. We don't have to worry about that. All judgment lies in the universe's hands, in God's hands. 
And then we come now, shifting gears a little bit, Krishna comes to Om Tat Sat, this is verse 23. This has been declared as the threefold designation of Brahman, God. From this power issued in the beginning the wise knowers of Brahman, the holy Vedas and the Vedic sacrificial rites. We've talked about Om Tat Sat before and I always use my most favorite example of sleep to help really tune into it. What is Om Tat Sat? It's a corollary in the Christian tradition of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Om is the Holy Spirit, Sat is the Father, which is that state of consciousness beyond creation, vibrationless, formless, attributeless, that which is, that's what Sat means, truth, that which is. Everything else is falsity because it exists temporarily. All creation, even if it exists for bagillion years, is still, compared to eternity, temporary. Om is that which sustains all of creation, that Holy Spirit. And Tat is the reflection of Sat, of the Father, within each atom of creation. Within us, God, in his vibrationless state, exists, which is what we're trying to achieve. That is the Tat. God in creation is Tat, God beyond creation is Sat, and creation itself is Om, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And so that's why when Christ said, I am the Son, he's talking about, I am that consciousness of the divine that exists in creation, the Kuthastha Chaitanya, the Christ consciousness. And it is from that vibration and the example I was just going to go is like, is that of sleep? Because that's a very helpful, easy example for us to see. When we sleep, our body is at rest, our mind is, you know, separate from the dream that we create. Now, my mind, my consciousness creates an entire dream. And in the dream, I create an entire world, roads and trees and the sun and the birds and fear and joy and all my friends and my enemies and whatever I want to create a beautiful drama, that entire creation is Om, everything. It's an aspect of my own consciousness, but the dream itself is Om. I, who is the dreamer, asleep, separate from the dream, is Sat. And then in the dream, there will be that one person that you say, that's me, right? Even though the entire dream is you, you've created absolutely everything, but still you will identify with one person within the dream. That one person you identify is Tat. Because he has and holds an aspect of your consciousness inside him. And so that's how we all exist in this world. The dreamer, the divine Sat, the creation itself, the very dream fabric. And then inside, one of us identifying, each of us in fact, identifying with that aspect of the divine and saying, this is me. And then using that, this is me, to eventually experience that divine reality. And then he says, of course, from this power came the wise, the Vedas and the sacrificial rites, which is first in each of us, we have our, we become wise first, then we're able to share that wisdom. And then the Vedas, that wisdom, in the rites becomes the practical application of that wisdom. Find the wisdom inside, express the wisdom outwardly, and then find practical means 
to be able to actually manifest that in daily life. Therefore, scripturally sanctioned deeds, which is sacrifice or the giving of gifts or the practice of austerities, are always begun with the chanting of Om. So just chanting Om in the beginning of anything you do already naturally energizes and spiritualizes them. Before you brush your teeth, before you when you wake up in the morning, just as you're about to eat, just as about you make you make a phone call, just as you're about to send an email. And isn't that amazing? Just om, 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 om. And that then just becomes a natural japa. Then you don't need to want to speak unnecessarily anymore. And then you're always even-minded and cheerful because you're in the vibration of home. Just that one simple aspect. And how much can change? We're, we're actually at the end of our thing, but I'm just going to read them all super quickly so that we can actually be done with this chapter. Those who seek liberation should perform all rites of ego sacrifice, which is true yagya, gift giving, which is the sharing with others whatever blessings you receive, and austerities while concentrated on the higher self. Without any wish for specific results. While concentrated on the higher self is not an abstract term. Like, uh, just think about God. While concentrated on the higher self is right here. By keeping your attention at the kutasta constantly while you're performing everything. That's the next way Krishna says. First, chant Om for every activity. Secondly, keep your attention at the point between the eyebrows at all times by concentrating on the higher self. Physically, that exists right here at the Agya Chakra, at the Kuthasta. That is our higher self. So while we concentrate here and do anything, we naturally lift ourselves up into Sattva. The word Sat is the designation of the Supreme Truth beyond the vibratory creation and of the supreme goodness emanating from it. Thus also, this word refers to every higher form of spiritual action, which means while performing, while in Om, if you concentrate on the higher self, you naturally start achieving a state of Sat. You naturally start rising beyond the lower vibrations of creation itself. Steadfastness, which is that tapasya, in self-offering to the infinite, the austerities, the selfless sharing, and any activity concerned with these purposes, therefore, is also spoken of as sat, as we just said. And the final verse of this chapter, verse 28. O Partha Arjuna, whatever sacrifices offered, gift bestowed, or austerity performed, if it is done, Without devotional faith, it is called asat, untruth. Both here and in the hereafter, it has no spiritual value. I love how Krishna leaves us with these really big you know, hammers on our heads. The honest moment of truth. Everything I have done thus far, or a majority of my own spiritual practices I have thus far, perhaps have no spiritual value at all. <laughs> because I have not done it with the right consciousness. My own meditations, my own energization exercises, oh boy, don't my own giving, my own loving, my own seva. Why? Anything 
that is done without devotional faith is untruth and has no spiritual value. Whereas I could have done something that isn't considered spiritual at all, but could have brought that devotional faith into it. And that would have far greater value in certain ways than some of my own spiritual practices. And that's always just, again, a humbling moment for each of us who consider ourselves very much on the spiritual path. And here we are for liberation and look at us go. And then you realize, wait a minute, I don't know if I've done much of any value at all. But the joy is, I can now do everything with much greater value. And that's what I choose to focus on. Not what I've done thus far, but what I will do from this moment on. Any, any yeah. practical tips for our friends? Well, it's a, it's a packed chapter It's today. a packed chapter. Yeah. <laughs> And so many wonderful things were spoken that it's difficult to choose what do we want to concentrate. But a scripture is not a scripture if we cannot apply it on a practical level day to day. So for me today, three things spoke out to me. And I would like to invite you all to practice it throughout this week and see what happens. One of them was when Krishna was talking about veneration and how important it is to have that respect towards you know someone that inspires you guides you or someone that you want to draw from them spiritual qualities that you want to implement in your life so i was thinking choose or look for that person in your life that you have great respect and you actually venerate him, you trust him, and, and he is your example to follow. For many of us, that's our guru. When sometimes we cannot connect with our guru, we connect with his disciples, Swami Kriyananda, and for some of you that perhaps don't have a guru, you may have your own father, you may have your own mother, you might have a boss that really inspires you and he has become your mentor and has wonderful qualities that you want to imitate. Perhaps it's your brother or your mother-in-law, <laughs> someone that really inspires you. And search for that quality that you want to develop within yourself. Once you have identified that quality, don't judge it on the other person. In fact, implement it and make it your own. And if you think you have already a quality, a quality, perfect it. It's not enough to have that attitude to manifest that in certain actions with certain people. We can always perfect ever more those qualities. So number one, see in your life who is the person that you want to start learning more consciously from it. If that's a family member, perhaps you want to call him every day. If that's your mother, perhaps you want to spend more quality time with her. Perhaps you want to ask more things about that specific quality and how she has developed it throughout her life. There are so many wonderful people around us and we kind of you know 
underestimate them and we always try to look for somebody else and they have so much to offer to us so look for that person who that person might be for you this very week number one secondly is when Krishna was talking about of course the importance every time we say something is it helpful <laughs> is it beneficial and is it true this is a law that we should start implementing in every conversation don't take your words lightly mean what you say otherwise you will decrease the power and the magnetism of your words then when you pray your words won't have power when you practice affirmations your words will go nowhere they won't have the spiritual weight the more we speak out our truth our truth beneficially and you know mm -hmm. helping helping the other person the more we will increase that magnetism in our world so be very very mindful especially this week so before you are about to speak out your mind before you are going to say something ask yourself is it beneficial is it helpful is it true and the third point was about giving that was a good one and i have to really introspect a lot because by nature i like to give and sometimes um thank god i have sure with that you know sometimes sharp discrimination like you know in giving more you are not necessarily gaining more spiritually which is a very wise advice that for many of us especially you know female energy you know where heart opens and we just go out towards people towards situations where we don't necessarily need to give and i want to bring that down in the terms of when we give advice without being asked for it and swami kriyananda advises here Wait until someone comes to you and asks you for advice or even wants advice from you. We have a tendency to see something and someone doing something wrong or we think it can be done better and without that person asking us, we just go there, interrupt that person and tell him, how it can be done better or how it should be done and i think that's a tendency for many of us to want to control and developing that attitude of i know more and sometimes we need to step back and don't advise to someone that it's perhaps ready to absorb that advice or to implement it so i would say if you can i'm going definitely try to step back a little bit before telling people constantly what they what they should be doing i mean i know it's difficult for mothers who <laughs> have children that you know i'm sure children need to be guided and it's a very difficult 
practice to be, you know, detached a little bit, but give a space to that person to learn at its own, at his own pace. It's important for us to trust that there is a higher intelligence. And sometimes by not telling that person what to do, he learns even quicker. And he learns by his own experience. And that's the only way for each one of us to learn. So don't be afraid or, or trust and, and allow the person to come to you for advice, for guidance. And if they don't come, be perfectly at peace that God knows them better than we know them. And he will guide them. So I would say those three things. All right. A triple whammy this <laughs> triple week. Triple one. <laughs> okay.